Romans 15, starting in verse 14. I just want to read this first verse and then share a little personally before we finish reading the section because Paul starts to get, we're getting to the very end of the letter and like any time in a letter, Paul's instructed, he's going to get very personal this last half of this chapter and into chapter 16. Uh, instead of just teaching, he's going to be talking to people in a very affectionate type of way and he starts here a little bit even in this section. He says, I myself, this is Paul, am satisfied about you, meaning that you, the church in Rome, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. You know, I was pausing and just thinking about that passage, and I thought, you know, I, I kind of get a little bit what Paul is, was talking about there. I mean, it just made me stop and pause and think about, you know, my time here in Laredo. That, that you know, I wasn't a pastor when I started off in, in life. I was a teacher and a coach, and it wasn't until 14 years ago, a little over that, we left. I quit my job. We moved to Dallas, went to seminary, and then from, from there came down here to Laredo. So this is the first place I've ever ministered before. I was brand new when I came here. And so some of you, I've seen you grow up and, and I've seen your kids grow up and I've seen you all get older while I stay the exact same age and I look exactly like I did when I first came. And what's amazing is I, I get what Paul says is I, I see this and it's been a much smaller season than say Paul's life. I, I can look out and see lives every single Sunday this is one of the most favorite things I love about being able to do what I do is, is I see people that five years ago or ten years ago or one year ago were totally different people in completely different places, some incredibly messed up places. And yet today I see them and they are totally different. God has changed and transformed them. And Paul is saying that same thing. He says, I see this goodness in you, church. And I'm overwhelmed. I'm so satisfied when I, when I see that, he says. And, and then I look and he says, the knowledge that you're being built up in the knowledge of Christ and that you're instructing others. And I think the same thing. I see people who, who when they first came, this is most of our people in our church, you didn't even know where to open up your Bible to. I mean, you didn't even know any of the books of the Bible. And now some of you actually know how to spell Romans after, you know, three semesters. And you're, you're familiar, you're comfortable opening it up uh, when you're in your small groups. And I've seen that progress and you, you're learning things that you never knew before. And then not just that, as you've gained some of that knowledge, you're beginning to instruct others. You Maybe you're serving in children's ministry and you're teaching kids and sharing with them the things that you've learned. Or maybe you're working with our students and you're passing on some of what you've learned. And maybe you're just like a day ahead of them. Remember that? I remember when I first started teaching or when I was first here, I was like one verse ahead of the rest of the congregation. But you're passing off what you have. You're maybe leading a small group and you would have never thought that you would ever be teaching someone else the Bible. You know, I, I learned a, a principle from a pastor that, that a phrase he used that really stuck with me, his name's Andy Stanley. And he, he says this, and I think it's so true about discipleship, this principle. He says, discipleship is not about filling up another person's cup. 
says when you disciple someone, you don't try to fill up their cup. That's our problem is most of us think, well, if I'm going to disciple someone, I've got to fill up their cup. And we realize I can't, I'm not capable of filling up their cup, so I, I'm not even going to try. Here's how he describes true discipleship. Discipleship is not filling up another person's cup. Discipleship is being willing to empty yours. You see, if you're willing to empty yours, you contribute. You're not going to be the only one that disciples someone else. You'll cripple yourself if you think you have to fill someone else's cup up because you're not capable of doing that. But what discipleship is is saying, you know what? What little or more lot has been put into my cup, I'm willing to pour it out into anyone's life whom I have the opportunity to do so. And when you start out, it's just going to be little thimbles, right? You'll psh, psh, you just dump it out. You dump out little bits, little bits, little bits, little bits. But every time you dump it out, here's what I've learned. Every time you dump out your cup, it seems like God expands your cup a little bit. And then he puts more in. And here's what's important. It's not just about dumping your cup out. It's about realizing that your cup needs to be filled as well. And a good discipler will not just empty his cup, but he'll sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus on a regular basis and say, God, if you don't fill my cup, it'll run empty all day long. And Jesus will begin to put a little bit every day into your cup and stretch your cup. And when you pour that out, he'll put a little bit more in or other people that you learn from, that you listen to, that you are shepherded by, and, and you get a little bit here, and this guy pours into your cup, and this guy pours into your cup, and all those things allow you to pour out into other people's lives. That's what I see when I see this church. You see, unhealthy churches think that unless your cup is this big and you got a theology degree and you went to seminary and you've been an elder or a deacon for 45 years, you aren't capable of discipling anyone else. And so what happens is when people come in, and when you come in, you have a very small cup. You go, man, I'll never have a cup that big, so I guess I'll just hang out and listen to the pastor dump his cup into my life and then come back again next week. But when you see a church like this, where people realize, hey, I may not have a very big cup, but I can dump the cup that I have into someone else's life, and in so doing, their cup expands a little bit and mine will be replaced with even more. That's what I see in this church. That's what I think makes this church very unique. And it brings more satisfaction, I can tell you, than almost anything else I've experienced in my life. Certainly more lasting than most things I've ever experienced. So I get what Paul's talking about. I have great joy over what I've experienced here at Grace. Moving on before someone starts crying or something like that. <laughs> Verse 15 says, Paul gives a little contrast and really continues. says, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified 
by the Holy Spirit. So here's what Paul says here. He says, hey, hey, I love what I'm seeing in you, and that's super exciting and satisfying, but he puts this contrast in here that's really not a contrast. It's kind of a contrast to launch them even further, meaning, but I'm gonna speak to you very boldly because God's called me as an apostle to the Gentiles, and I want you to not just be an offering acceptable to God, I want you to be a grand offering to God. And he's using, you know, Old Testament imagery like he does at the beginning of the section in Romans 12, kind of our memory or our theme verse where he says, be transformed. He says, make your life a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of service. Paul's saying, I love where you're at, church. Gives me great satisfaction. But don't become complacent. Because I don't want you just to, it's kind of like a coach. Here's how I'd picture it. You're, let's say you're a coach and you're, you just won your first playoff game, okay? And you come in and, and like you've never won a playoff game and your coach is fired up, you're fired up, and that coach says, I'm so proud of how you guys fought today and, and you stayed in the game and you were behind, you could have quit, and you kept fighting, you kept winning, but the coach ends it by saying, but, but guys, you need to know we won our first playoff game, but I think you have the potential to go all the way. You would not want your team to go, oh, come on, coach, we won the first playoff game. I mean, let's just call it quits here and, and, and just call it good. No. And you win the first playoff game so that you can make it to the championship. And Paul's saying that to this church. Here's my point, and then we'll tease this out a little bit, is we must, as a church, boldly remind each other of God's truth by grace so that our lives become greatly pleasing to the Lord. So that our lives become greatly pleasing to the Lord. So Paul's using this image of a sacrifice, and he's saying, hey, I'm, I'm a minister to the Gentiles, and their lives become kind of a, a sacrifice to God as they live for God. And I want it to be the best sacrifice that it possibly can. That motivated Paul to give everything he had as an apostle to minister to whom God had given him. And the picture here is this. The word acceptable in this passage, and again, this happens a lot in translations, just to shorten it. The word acceptable used in the Greek word really means to be uh, very welcome or to be greatly pleased with someone coming. So it's not just an idea of being accepted, it's actually the idea of being very accepted, meaning accepted is here, and then very accepted is here. Paul's not saying that until you guys obey so much and accomplish so much, then God will accept you into his kingdom. That contradicts the whole truth that Paul's been talking about in the Gospel of Romans that says we're accepted on Jesus Christ's work for me. When you place your faith and trust in him, his righteousness becomes ours and makes us a son or daughter. You are accepted. You are welcomed at that point. But the difference he's saying here is that those who have trusted in Christ are welcomed. And even if you remain somewhat immature or kind of passive throughout your life, there can be some that maybe you never really trusted. But if you did and you just become complacent, you're going to be welcomed, but you won't be greatly welcomed. Let me, let me picture this. As a parent, you have two children. One is kind of lazy, disobedient, doesn't really do what you ask them to do. They're just kind of there all the time, and they're living in your basement until they're like 55. 
You know what I'm saying? Like movies about kids like that. Then you have the one that, that does exactly what you ask with enthusiasm, with joy, and is always seeking to know what your will is and to do it in a way that's pleasing to you for his own good. You're going to welcome both of those children. You're going to accept both of those children as your children. But you are going to greatly welcome the one who is obedient to your will. That's what Paul is talking about here. He says it like this in 2 Peter, and you can turn there if you want to write this down. I didn't have it in a slide because I just thought of it kind of in the middle of this. So just jot this down. 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 8. This is a whole section in Peter's epistle about maturity uh, that's very important, some really important truths in this. He says in verse 5, just listen to this, and it's, I'm going to show you that he, he gives us progression of maturity in our lives if we pursue it, but then he's going to give us the result at the end. So listen, and I'll bring, my, I'll bring attention to it. He says, for this very reason, he says, make every effort to supplement your faith That's what God has done with virtue. So he's saying our effort as Christians is not to save ourselves. His effort is that we want to partner with the Holy Spirit to grow up. There's a thriving for that that takes place. He says partner with virtue. He says and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness. Steadfastness with good godliness. Godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Then he says this, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, he's saying that's, uh, if you're maturing, if you're pursuing maturity as a Christian, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So let me explain this real quick. Peter here is talking to believers. Now, there's blind people that are not believers at all, but Peter's talking to believers here and saying, hey, there, even within Christians, there are some who have kind of become blinded to the truths and they've kind of fallen back into their ways a little bit. And he says, they're a person that's blind, having forgotten that they were cleansed from their former sins. That's not true of an unbeliever. It's true of a believer who's become very passive in his living. And then he concludes with this. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And then he tells us why. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So important we see in this. It doesn't say in this way, by you striving, you'll make it into heaven. It says, in this way, there will be richly provided. Meaning, you can just have it provided, or you can have it richly provided. And the difference is, what do you do with your life after you've trusted Jesus Christ? You're going to be an acceptable offering or you're going to be greatly acceptable to the Lord. You see, this is what the Bible says in a nutshell, is basically maturity in a nutshell. This is maybe worth the message right here, just this simple concept, is maturity or immaturity, obedience or disobedience, really boils down to one very simple concept. If you desire the world's presence and the rewards of the world more than you do God's, you're never going to mature. 
If you think what the world has to offer in this, in this place and the rewards of the world is the most valuable thing to you, you are crippled from maturing. However, if you believe God's presence and God's rewards far surpass anything else you could receive, then you can't do anything but mature and grow in obedience. That's what Paul is talking about in this passage. That's what he's, he's saying it in a corporate sense. He's saying it to us as a church, as Gentiles. Who are we gonna be? What kind of entrance are we gonna have into God's presence when that day comes? So that's the what. What we must strive for is we must be a church that continually and boldly reminds each other of how we are to live because of what awaits us, because of the true reward that awaits us. And then Paul goes on to say, well, how can we do that? How, he, he explains it in his life. So look at verse 17 and following. He says, in Christ Jesus, notice he says this, that's a common phrase that Paul uses, meaning when we've been saved, we are now in the sphere of Christ's body, so it's in him that we operate. He says, in Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Paul's pride and his boasting isn't in himself. It's in Christ Jesus, the fact that he's part of this body and God's called him to perform a certain work within that body. And he says, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Now, I, I love this. Paul had a, a great concept. He had two anchor points in his life. One was he was anchored back to God. That's the source of my strength. And then he was anchored into his mission, which is the direction of his strength. I'm called to be a minister to the Gentiles. See, many of us, we get anchored in Jesus, and then we, we go out and find our own mission. We want to do what we want to do. And Paul had many opportunities. I mean, he made tents. He could, have, he could have started a whole tent-making factory and probably made millions of dollars. Paul's outdoor gear, right? He had handkerchiefs, and, and his shadow would often heal people. I mean, if he just set up a booth and handed out Paul's healing hankies, I mean, people would have flocked from every. He would have made millions. But you know what? God didn't say, Paul, make tents to the glory of God. Paul didn't say, or God didn't say, Paul, make hankies that heal people to the glory of God. God said, Paul, you are called to go reach the Gentiles. As Dominic mentioned, Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He knew everything about the Jewish faith. And God said, your ministry isn't to the Jewish people. You go, Paul. Paul didn't get married. Paul didn't have kids. He couldn't breed, if you know what I'm saying. He gave up all that because he took the source from God and he was focused on his mission the whole time. He was passionate about it. He tells us here the different things that he saw that authenticated it. He said, I did this by word and deed. It's meaning kind of inward and outward, what I say and what I do. That was a sign of Christ's work in him by the power of signs and wonders. Paul, if you read the book of Acts, you see he and many of the apostles performed powerful signs and wonders. Notice he didn't just say miracles. Signs are meaning that. They're signs that point to the person of God, not to that individual person. Lastly, by the power of the Spirit of God. He sums it up. It's really a ministry that was empowered by the Spirit of God. So here's our point, is God will accomplish his work through us by the transforming power of his spirit, by the transforming power 
of his spirit. You see, when our words and our deeds match up, it's a sign of the spirit's transforming work in our lives. You know why Christians are known as hypocrites by so many people in the world? Because our words and our deeds don't match up. That's usually a sign of a lack of the Spirit's presence. And it could be one of two things. There's a bunch of people going to church that really aren't saved. They just think if they go, it makes them good enough to be saved and they've never been transformed by the gospel. Or you have some Christians that really have been saved, but they're so entangled in the things of this world and their eyes have been blinded, like Peter said, that they're acting more like the world than they are like God's son. And Paul's saying, you know the presence of the Spirit is part of a ministry when people's lives and their words are matched up. They're inside and they're outside. He, he talks about signs and miracles, and I don't want to get hung up on that, but ultimately I think in this particular time period, and you see this throughout the Bible, is that God tended to perform significant numbers of miracles during key transitional times in history when he had to authenticate that a ministry was from him. He did it with uh, Moses and the Israelites when he brought Moses in to do that. He did it in New Testament times when Jesus came and authenticated his ministry with miracles so that people would know he was the Messiah. He did it with the apostles to start with so that they knew that Jesus' ministry was being transitioned now over to the apostles and to the church. We don't see the same kinds of sign miracles in the exact same way today. I'm not saying we don't see miracles. We just don't need them like they did then. You know where we tend to see them more so nowadays? You talk to missionaries who are reaching people in unreached people groups, and they see these kinds of miracles because they're going into people groups who have never even heard of this God, and they're worshiping some pagan God, and they need a, a miracle or a sign to authenticate that there's a real God. You and I have heard the gospel. The truth has come. We have the whole scriptures here available. We don't need sign miracles. Just like the Jewish people kept wanting signs from Jesus and Jesus said, it wouldn't matter what sign I give you. You're not going to believe. You don't, you don't get saved because of signs. You have the word of God. You need this to understand. But many places don't have that yet. Those are the things that we see happening. See, conversion and transformation are the truest miracles and signs of the Spirit's presence. When Jesus sent out his 72 disciples in Luke 10, and he gave them the power uh, to cast out demons, to perform miracles, and they came back all fired up about the miracles they were doing. That's all they could talk about was miracles, miracles, miracles. And Jesus kind of sadly looked at them and said, you know, don't rejoice over these miracles but rejoice over the fact that your name is written in the kingdom of heaven. The greatest miracle, church, is that you and I, sinners, could be part of God's kingdom. No miracle ever supersedes that. And whenever a church gets more focused on miracles that heal people that are gonna die again anyways, they've lost sight of the greatest miracle, that when we die, we will be with God for all of eternity. And Paul is emphasizing these things that are true of a spirit-filled ministry. Third thing is the result. What will it result in? What happens when a church puts these into practice? And Paul says it very well. 
as he closes this out. He says, so that, at the end of verse uh, 17, which is, again, a purpose or a result statement, he says, so that, why is the Spirit in me? So that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Now, if you know the Middle Eastern area there, uh, up into the Roman Empire at that time, you know that uh, Jerusalem was where the gospel started, where Christ was crucified, and Illyricum was the furthest you could go before you hit the Adriatic Sea and cross the Adriatic Sea to where Rome was. Paul had covered all that area. Every Gentile that was around there had had the opportunity to hear the gospel. Paul had not yet come to Rome. He wanted to go to Rome. And later we're going to see that Paul, one of the reasons he wanted to go to Rome is because because he was called to Spain, which was even further. And Paul carried the gospel all the way through to those places. And that was his ambition. He says, thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Here's my last point for us is the result of our ministry should be personal maturity and unreached people hearing the gospel. The result of our ministry should be personal maturity and unreached people hearing the gospel. You see, God gives an increase in his glory and worship in two ways. This is a simple concept. God increases his glory and his worship in two ways. One is when you and I grow up. See, when we mature, we put aside our worship of things in this world and we turn it to God who is truly valuable. And every time we do that in some area of our life, we bring greater glory and greater worship to God and his glory is increased. That's God's greatest purpose in the universe is that he would receive as much glory as possible. Now, I know that sounds strange because for us, if we were to say something like that, it would seem really selfish. Let me tell you why it's not selfish. Just put your brain in action here for a minute. Let's pretend, and this is a bad image, but I think it'll make the point. Let's pretend you're a politician, okay? And, and if you think of what politicians do, politicians come in and they make great promises of the changes and the things they're gonna make so much better in your community and how your life will be so much better. And they make all these promises, and we love those promises, so we find the one that has the greatest promises and say, yeah, I'm gonna vote for you, I'm gonna give you all the attention I can, because I think if you get in office, things will be much better. Oftentimes the problem is though they get in office and they don't have the power or the integrity to carry out those promises. But let's say there was a perfect politician. Let's say someone existed who had the best promises ever that would be best for everyone. They had every bit of power to accomplish them and they would never, ever lie. Okay, let's say that person existed. What would, you, what would be the most unselfish thing that that person could do? Would they, if that person was really unselfish, would they say, oh, I don't, you know, I don't want all the attention, and I don't want people to know about me, so I'm not going to run for president, even though if I did, it would make our country the very best, and it would make the whole world the best. I, that would be too selfish for me to promote myself, so I'm just going to step back, and I'll let some broken, sinful person run for president. Would that be... A good thing? No, the best thing that person could do would do everything they can to draw people's attention to them because they truly are the solution to the world's problems. 
And there's nothing selfish about that because that person comes with a mindset to do good for other people. That's God. God's purpose is to increase his worship, to increase his glory. Because when you worship him, it's good for you. When you give glory to him, it's for your own good. And there's only two ways in which that happens. When we stop worshiping this world and start worshiping him, that's maturity. And when new people who have never worshiped God start worshiping God, that's his glory and their good. Those are the two missions of the church. That's why we exist. That's why our our mission statement captures these two things. Our mission is to lead our city into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. See, when you open up your Bible in the morning, when you go to your small group, when you come here to church, whatever it might be, and that changes you, it's a life-transforming experience, you let go of the things of this world, and you worship God more, you've accomplished our mission. You've grown up. You've given God more glory. When you go out and lead someone else into a life-changing relationship with God, you've increased the glory that God is receiving, and that's pleasing to him. That's why our vision should challenge us as well as a congregation and move us out of our comfort zone. That's why our vision is, let's just be as good as we can, the 750 that show up every Sunday. Let's just keep being better and better and better. No, our vision is every neighbor in every neighborhood. What if every neighborhood had a church like this where they wouldn't have to drive across town to be part of a small group, where they wouldn't have to drive across town to worship with people whom they interact with every day, where they wouldn't have to drive across town and try to make sense of a message that's not in the language that they're most comfortable with? So we have a vision that says, what if we could plant a church in all six zip codes? What if us in our day, in our lifetime, could be part of something that allowed every single zip code to have a church in their language, in their neighborhood, that was telling people about the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul's life is a great example of living with a mission. But you know what? There's a greater Example. There's a greater Paul that even Paul's ministry points to. You see, Jesus is not just the greatest example of what we learn today, but the very reason why our broken lives, why Paul's broken life could somehow be turned around and used for a mission so much greater than ours. You see, the reason you and I can be a living sacrifice as Paul said, is because someone was a dying sacrifice. And not just anyone. I could have laid down my life as a dying sacrifice and it would have done absolutely nothing for your sins, nor would yours for mine. You see, we needed a perfect living sacrifice. We needed a sacrifice that was worthy to be ushered into the kingdom of heaven at the end of his life. And instead of taking that ticket, instead grabbing the ticket that says, sinner, you be crucified, you be killed for your sins. So that you and I, who are sinners and should be put to death and separated from God, can grab the ticket that's still left that says, you're my son. You are a king, you're a prince, 
welcome into my kingdom. Jesus took on human flesh and was sent to people very far from him. So not just to proclaim a message, but to become that hope, to become that message so that you and I would have something to proclaim. Paul wandered because of this truth all across the known world of his day, setting aside all kinds of comforts and privileges because his greatest goal was to share the gospel with anyone who had never heard. Imagine if, if we spent time with people like that, like Jesus, and read about Paul, how different we might feel about just walking across the street to our neighbor who's maybe never heard or striking up a conversation with a family member who's never heard. Jesus crossed the universe. Paul crossed the known world. We as a church, often all we gotta do is cross the office complex, walk across the lunchroom, walk across the gym, and there's someone there that's never heard this truth. Church, we can be welcomed, and we will be welcomed, even if we just hang out and stay comfortable for the rest of our lives. But what might it look like if we just said, you know what? Just hanging out is not the legacy we want to leave in Laredo. What if God looked down at this church, this generation, and saw a church that said, not until there's a church in every zip code of this city will we quit with the mission you've given us. Not until my grandparents or my friends or my family members that can't understand the language in this service and maybe would be uncomfortable driving across town to this place, not until they have a church in their neighborhood where they can call home and they can meet in the neighbors and homes that they're doing and they can empty their cup into the person who's never had a cup emptied into their lives, will we be satisfied? See, God won't welcome us in in that case. He will kill the fatted calf. He will throw a party and the angels in heaven will rejoice over a church. That's just what Paul was talking about. That could be this church. I pray it. It becomes this church.